The following lesson is brought to you by The Church of Christ on McDermott Road. Let's go ahead and set a prayer. Most Holy Father, we are incredibly thankful to have another opportunity to be here to gather and study your word. Father, help us to know you better. Help us to know ourselves better. Help us, Father, to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you especially for revealing yourself through your Son. We thank you, Father, for the redemption that has been provided for us through him. Father, thank you for pouring out your Spirit. Thank you, Father, for allowing us to be a temple for your presence. Father, help us to live our lives in a way that brings glory and honor to you. Father, it's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so everybody have a worksheet. If not, there are some by either door. Um, let's review real quick. Um, the, we, we talked, and hopefully this class has kind of followed some sort of a, a flow and a structure to it. Uh, we kind of started off in the Old Testament and talked about the way that the Jewish people in the Hebrew language thought about human existence and what it meant to be a human being. Uh, and then we transitioned to the New Testament and we looked at it through the lens of the Jewish writers because they were Jewish um, and the Old Testament is God's word. And so we looked at it through that lens, but also through the Greek language and said, okay, given that the language has changed, um, what do these concepts mean with the two layers? One being of Greek, the other being of um, Hebrew, of the Old Testament that are kind of both present in the New Testament. So in the Greek, Remember what the words are. Let's try to review real quick. What's the Greek word for soul? You remember? That's, that's Hebrew. Well, and that's, and that's spirit. He, ruach was the Hebrew word for spirit. And nefesh was the, the Hebrew word for soul. So what's the Greek equivalent of that? What's the Greek nefesh? Yes, that's right. Suke or psuke. Suke. And obviously, there's all kinds of words that we get from that, like psyche, right, or psychology, psuche, so soul. Um, and what is, what is soul? When we talk about soul, most often, what are we talking about? What's that? Your being, your being yes, your being. Uh, what, somebody else said something? Bre yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, there's, there's a connection to that. Um, well, no, not spirit. But, but usually we're talking about life, right? We're talking about myself as a living being or yourself as a living being. We're talking about a living self, a living being, a living creature uh, might be another way to think of that. So your soul is your life. And so when the New Testament talks about your soul, it's talking about your life. Usually, not always, there's a couple of exceptions, but almost always talking about your physical, Again, I don't like the word, I don't even like the word physical because that kind of throws all kinds of things into it. But, but your physical, earthly existence, the tangible existence, okay? It's talking about your life. So usually when it talks about soul, but again, I think the best word for soul is being. It is your, your living being, okay? Flesh. Now here was an interesting word we talked about last week. Anybody remember the Greek for that? Sarks. Good. Sarks. Okay, now, just like spirit, sarks can be both, flesh can be both literal 
and a metaphor, right? What literally is flesh? Right, tissue, right? Exactly. It's, it's this soft tissue that covers your body, right? So it's your skin and this stuff, right? Um, I'm not a doctor and the Bible's not written to be a medical journal. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, we, we know what flesh is. When Jesus said, eat my flesh, obviously he's talking about, you know, he's talking in a metaphor, but he was talking about he was going to give his flesh, right? His body, his physical being. So in a very literal sense, it's flesh. But then there's the metaphor, which is how the New Testament usually talks about flesh. And what are some of the metaphorical ways that the New Testament uses the word or the idea of sarks? What, and, and here's my favorite word. Let's see if this reminds you a little bit. Frailty. Frailty? I-T-Y? Frailty? Frailty? How do you spell it? T-Y? Okay, yeah. Just didn't feel right. Okay, yeah, frailty. Okay, so, so I, I think that, that one of the best ways to think of it as a metaphor, when the Bible talks about flesh, it's talking about your human frailty. Um, corruptibility is another good word. So your human frailty or corruptibility. I love writing on the whiteboard, but I hate writing on the whiteboard because then you see how bad um, I spell. Uh, so corruptibility or frailty and that could be in two different senses. What two different ways can we mean that you as a human are corruptible and frail? Two different ways. What's one way we could mean that? Physically, yeah, physically and morally, right? So physically, you're frail, right? You're corruptible. Your, your flesh corrupts. It decays. It breaks down, right? And so one way of using the term flesh is to talk about your human existence in terms of physical frailty, physical corruptibility, you're mortal, right? And so when the Bible talks about us as flesh, it's not just saying you have skin. Obviously, you have skin. It's talking about you in the sense that you are from the dirt, right? You are a dirt monster. No, that's not a good way to put it. You're a dirt, you're a dirt being, right? And, and you are, you're frail and, and you're, you're dying. Your, your body is corruptible. But then it also talks about it, again, as a metaphor. It's not literal. You have to be careful. It's not literal um, because some of the fleshly things that happen happen on the inside, right? So it's a metaphor for your moral frailty, your moral corruptibility. We talked about last week why I'm not real fond, but we can see why, right? We can see why some translate that as sinful nature. But why... I struggle with that is because you can't be consistent and translate it as sinful nature, right? If you say sinful nature because Jesus came in the flesh and he was morally corruptible, but he wasn't morally corrupt, right? He had a fleshly nature. He was morally frail. He could have sinned. He was tempted in every way as we are, but yet without sin, right? And so... But, but this, when the Bible talks about us having, being beings of flesh and walking by the flesh, it's talking about the fact that we, we have a weakness. We have moral weakness, right? And so when the Bible talks about our flesh, it's talking about it in one time, sometimes as a literal, your skin, but most of the time it's talking about it in the sense of either you are physically weak and you're decaying, 
or you're morally weak and you're susceptible to sin and corruption. And all of us have given in to that sin and corruption. We've all, we've all fallen prey to our flesh. We've all fallen prey to the fact that we are uh, morally uh, corruptible. We are mor- morally frail. Uh, we are morally weak. And so flesh talks about the human existence from the aspect of our weakness. Okay, so the aspect or the um, vantage point might be a good way to put it, the vantage point of our weakness. Um, so, so we could say, um, and really, again, I think it's helpful to think of this in terms of aspects of our nature rather than parts of our nature. Um, if you told me, describe Malachi or describe Noah, my boys, well, I might say, well, you know, Noah's kind of, in fact, we were listening to Holly's interview that she did with Carol Williams a few weeks ago. We were listening to that right before we came, and she was talking about the boys. Now, that's always interesting when you're talking about your children, and then your children listen to the recording of you talking about them. You know, and so, and so she, she described Noah as kind of wild and crazy and also sweet, right? And so both of those things are, are absolutely true, right? He, he has sweetness and he has wildness, right? Now, those aren't different parts of him. They're his nature from two different vantage points at two different times. They're different aspects of his nature, right? Um, You might think of it like, I don't know, I'm thinking of a diamond shape in my head. You know, if you look at a diamond from the side, it kind of looks like a triangle, right? It's kind of pointy on the bottom and it's big at the top. But if you look at a diamond from the top, what shape does it look like? It's circle. It's round, right? Um, So you say a, a diamond is round. Yes, absolutely. You say a diamond is triangle shape. A- absolutely. I mean, both are true. And you think, well, don't those contradict? Is it triangle shape or is it, is it round? No, no, it's both. It just depends on what aspect, what direction you're looking at it. You could also say a diamond is hard. You could talk about a diamond's hardness. You could talk about a diamond's transparency. All those are different aspects of the same thing. And so when the Bible talks about us, it's not talking about us in a way that can be chopped up in a laboratory and say, okay, well, this is this part of you and this is this part of you. There is, there is a part of that for, the, you know, there is a tiny part of that. Um, but for the most part, it talks about you as a unified being. You are a unified being. And that's because that's the way you experience life. You experience life as a unified being, right? And when, when you feel like you are at odds or there's a war going on, then that's, that's something that has to be dealt with, right? And that it's, it's going to be resolved one way or the other, right? It's, it's a war that will be quickly re- resolved. So when the Bible talks about our flesh, not necessarily saying that we have sinned or that we're destined to sin, but we do sin and we all have sinned. Why? Well, because we're frail and because we're corruptible, because we're morally weak. Uh, same reason we die is because we are, we are physically weak. Okay, so um, we have a psuche or we are a psuche, a soul um, that has flesh. And we could also talk about body, soma, but that, that's pretty much just your body, soma. Um, but, but again, when the Bible uses soma, it's, not, it's talking about, the in a way, the same thing flesh is, right? They're both body, right? Your flesh and your soma. But, but one is talking about your body from a certain vantage point. 
saying your body is weak and frail and dying and corruptible. The other is just saying it's your body, right? It's just your body. Um, but, but this carries a connotation with it that soma doesn't necessarily carry with it. Okay, now how about spirit? What's the, what's the word for spirit? Oh, that, yeah, ruach is in, in Hebrew. Good. What, what is it in Greek? Remember? Somebody might have said it. Pneuma, yeah. It's the E-M-A. P-N-E-U-M-A, yeah. E-U-M-A, like pneumonia. I just can't spell. Okay. Pneumonia. Pneuma. Okay. So, like pneumonia or pneumatic, like a pneumatic device, you know, so it is, what's the, what's the literal meaning of pneuma? Yeah. Air, breath, wind, right? So, so there's the literal meaning of it, just like the literal meaning of flesh, literal meaning of sarks is your skin. Your literal meaning of your pneuma is your breath, right? But then there's a metaphor to it. There's also um, the metaphorical way of talking about it, and that's your spirit, right? And your spirit can be a lot of, it can be used in a lot of different ways, but it's just talking about the invisible, your invisible presence that animates your body, right? That animates your life. And when you die, your spirit, the, the part, the, the animation to you, the, the presence, your presence that animates your physical self, that spirit leaves your body, right? It leaves your body. Um, and at the resurrection, there will be, you, you'll have, you, you won't have, we won't be a being of flesh anymore, right? Now, we're going to talk about this in a minute, but that doesn't mean that you won't be physical, okay? Because just because you won't be flesh, it doesn't mean you won't be physical. It just means that you won't be frail, and corruptible, right? You'll be immortal, right? You will be imperishable. What was perishable will put on imperishability, right? Because that's what flesh is all about, is your perishability. Okay, um, but, but again, the, most of the time that the New Testament talks about your pneuma or your pneuma, um, it's not talking about your pneuma, right? Your spirit. Who's it talking about? The Holy Spirit, God's spirit, God's divine presence that animates and gives life, right? That's what, that's what a spirit is. It, it animates and it gives life. Your spirit animates you and it is your, your living being, your living presence. And God's, God's presence is, is the same way. And, and God's spirit is present all throughout the story of the Bible, right? From the very beginning, before anything was put together, the spirit of God, what? hovered over the surface of the deep, right? He, he hovered over the waters, right? Like a, like a mother hen almost. I mean, he was there. And then God's spirit worked to bring animation and life and brought order to the chaos that was the world. And, and then we see God's spirit uh, leading the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery. We see God's spirit in the tabernacle. We see God's spirit, his presence um, in the temple of God. We see God's spirit in the New Testament that on the day of Pentecost, we hear the sound of what? Wind, right? Rushing wind. That makes sense because that's what pneuma is. In a literal sense, it's wind. But as a metaphor, it is the presence of God that rushes into the people of God. And you remember like in Ezekiel with the dry bones and, and God's breath came in and gave life to these bones, right? They, that not only did they kind of put themselves together, but then life was breathed into them and they were animated and they were living. And God can take a dead people 
and bring them to life, right? And that's what he did with the remnant of Israel on the day of Pentecost. And then as his spirit was poured out on all people and it went even to the Gentiles, then he breathed life into the dead Gentiles, right? Ephesians, you were dead in your sins and your trespasses. But God's spirit brings life and it brings animation. It brings action, right? And when I say animation, we just mean action, the doing of things. And that way God gets, God gets the credit for the doing of things, right? Because he is the living presence that's alive in the church. And, and there were times, of course, when the Spirit of God worked miraculously. He empowered uh, some people in some ways, and he empowered other people in other ways. And Paul spends so much time talking about that, doesn't he? In Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, he says, Listen, we're a body. Ephesians 4, he says, we're a body. And, and the Spirit of God equips us differently. He equips the apostles and the prophets in a certain way. He equips evangelists in a certain way. He, he equips shepherds, pastors, and teachers in a certain way. He, he equips all of us in different ways for the building up of the body, right? As the body is equipped and enlivened and as it is animated with life, it builds itself up together in love, right? That's, that's beautiful, isn't it? And, and, and so, man, I really want to focus on that today as we talk about what it means to be spiritual, okay? So just kind of keep in mind everything we've talked about with soul and flesh and spirit, because these are the nouns that are going to kind of form the bedrock of the adjectives that we're going to talk about. So now we're going to kind of get into some adjectives that I think will help us to understand the nouns better, but ultimately with the end goal of helping us to understand ourselves better. Okay, so let's look at a few things. Look over at 1 Corinthians 2. We'll, get, we'll kind of pick back up on our worksheet in a second, but I want you to see a couple things. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. In fact... I want you to see, I'm, I'm going to spoil the surprise because like, I just can't really stand it because it's so interesting to me. Um, so, so the word um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, look at 1 Corinthians 2, 14. I'll spoil the surprise and then we'll look at the context. Okay, so, um, so verse 14 says, in my translation, it says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, mine says the natural person. Anybody else say anything different? What, it just says person. That's really, what translation is that? NIV, it just says person. That's interesting, okay? What else? A person without the Spirit. That's good, too. I like that. Okay, so the word here that, that the ESV translates as uh, natural is actually, the root word is psuche. It's psuchikos. Um, so it's, it's an adjective form of the word soul. So now, now look at what he's contrasting. Because with an adjective, a lot of times, you have to know in comparison to what, right? So if I say, if I say healthy, what does healthy mean? That can mean a lot of different things, right? If I say this church is a healthy church, I mean, what do you mean by that? Do you mean healthy as in, as the opposite of, 
you know, sick, like physically sick? Or do you mean healthy as in growing? Or do you mean healthy as in um, they, they, they know God and they're, they're spiritually minded? I mean, what do you mean by healthy? You have to kind of contrast it with something to know what you mean by that sometimes. And so it's interesting to me that the contrast to spiritual here, which the root word there is pneuma, right? And then, or yeah, and then, and then the, the adjective here is, so we might say literally, and it'll never translate it this way, it would be soulish, okay? So it's an adjective with the root word of soul. So it's either you're soulish or spiritual. Now, the way most people use the word soul, they would not understand that at all. But hopefully we've, we've kind of talked about these things enough that that might seem, okay, yeah, I get that. So why would a person without the Spirit, a person who doesn't understand spiritual things, why would Paul call that kind of natural person soulish? Okay, yeah. Okay, so, so the, the Spirit isn't guiding this person, right? So he is a, and natural is a great word. Natural is a great word because it's an adjective that describes a person who is just a natural person. He's alive, right? And that's what soul is. Soul is your, your natural being. It is this. It is it's just your natural life, right? Um, it, it's, a, it's alive and it's living and it's thinking and it's feeling. Um, but the Spirit of God is not animating it. Okay, so when Paul is talking about the natural person, and we're going to look at the context, so, so we can't get too far ahead of ourselves, but, but as he's talking about, he's not talking about a person without a personal spirit, right? So here's something we need to already be aware of. We can just look at this one verse and we can say, well, to be soulish or to be natural doesn't mean that you don't have a personal spirit. Everybody has a personal spirit, right? We're all animated, right? But we must be talking about God's spirit. So we're talking about spiritual. We're not talking about somebody who's, who is in touch with their own spirit. We're talking about somebody who's in touch with the spirit of God, right? And I think we're going to see that as we go through it. Mr. David? Great. That, that's a great point. Okay, so, so and that, that's, a, that's a phenomenal point. And think of it like this, too. And, and, and here's where I think that this is going to, if we can capture this essence of what Paul is about to say um, in these this passages, and I wish we could go all the way. I, I, I want you to do that. That's kind of your homework if you have time. But I know you get homework in every place you go. But, um, but, but, but read through 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 and, and realize that I think what he's saying is that a soulish person, and I'm putting that in quotes uh, for those that are listening online, I'm, I'm putting this in air quotes, uh, soulish, uh, a natural person, is somebody who lives their life by what is inside of them. Okay, okay, it could be, yeah, it could be their emotions, but, but when we think of spiritual people in the world, right, Eastern religions tend to look internally, right? They meditate and they try to get in touch with their inner self to guide them. That, I think, is precisely the idea of a soulish person. 
uh, not because the soul is the inner person necessarily, but just because they are relying on what is inside of them. They're relying on self to guide them. And isn't that the story of the whole Bible? That when you rely on what is in you, when you follow your own heart and your own spirit, when you do what is right in your own eyes, the end is what? Death. That's what always happens. And so a, a natural person tries to perceive, tries to look at, tries to think about, tries to feel, but they're limited by what's in them, right? They're limited to what they can see. They're limited to what they can feel. They're limited to what they can think about. Now, look look up at, I know I said chapter two. I kind of lied. Um, but, but he talks about, even in chapter one, about the wisdom of God, and the wisdom of this age. Look at verse 20. Where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So we're not, we're not talking about people that just go through life and, and just, you know, depend on what they can touch and taste with their mouth, you know, physically, you know, experience. We're also talking about thinkers, right? We're debaters and philosophers, wise people that are thinking about things. And think about the Greek the Greco-Roman world. I mean, think about all of the philosophers that they had, Plato and Aristotle and Socrates, and they had all of these thinkers and people were all, and the Jews were always thinking, right? I mean, they're, they're, the world was not short on people that thought about spiritual things, as we would think of the word, the idea of spiritual. But I think the way Paul is going to use this is to talk about spiritual in, in the idea of God's spirit what comes from outside of us, and not just outside of us, but from heaven. It's almost as if there is, there is the, the world, the earth, and there is heaven, and, and, and the Spirit of God being poured out on mankind is kind of the two worlds colliding, right? It's, it's, these two, it's the overlapping, and really, and there's a lot of scholarly you know, information on this too, but I mean, really that's kind of what the temple was. The temple was an overlapping of heaven and earth, right? I mean, it's the place where God, who is in heaven, dwelt on earth, right? It's where his presence was, where his spirit was. And then we're told in the New Testament that the church is now the temple, right? We are the overlapping. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? We are the overlapping of heaven and earth. We are the place where the, the truly spiritual dwells. We are the people in whom the Spirit of God dwells, right? Now, but I, I want us to be careful as we're reading through this and be pay very close attention to how Paul uses the words we and us and you, okay? So when Paul says you, he doesn't mean Wes, and he doesn't mean any of you necessarily. He means y'all, right, plural, and he's talking about the people in Corinth, right, the church in Corinth. Um, so he says, Jews demand, verse 22, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And he tells them, consider your, your calling when you're called. Nobody was wise by, by human standards. And that's really the, the contrast here, right? Is how does God look at things? How does the natural man look at things? Even the wisest of men is really just natural. He's soulish, right? Look at verse one of chapter two. When I came to you, brothers, 
I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Now, again, that as we go, we're going to see that he keeps kind of talking about that wisdom and lofty speech, right? These are things of soulishness, natural things. Um, the wisdom of men. I didn't, I didn't come to you with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature... We do impart wisdom. Now, I think that's, that's the word that best describes who he's hoping to reach with the message of the gospel. Mature, right? Mature people are able to receive and listen to the message of the gospel. To the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, we kind of passed a we. Did you see that in verse, three, verse 7? But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. Who's the we? Paul, right, and whoever is with him, right, assuming the apostles, right, or maybe his traveling companions, but probably the other apostles. So we, the apostles, the preachers of the gospel, the proclaimers, the ambassadors of Jesus, impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, and none of the rulers of this age understood it. If they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. As it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Now, he's not talking about what God has prepared to come. What's he talking about? The gospel, right? He's talking about the gospel. He's saying, this is what God always had prepared. And nobody even, nobody saw it. Nobody thought it up. Nobody felt it coming. Nobody just sat and was a philosopher and said, hmm, I bet God is going to send his only begotten son as a sacrifice for our sin. Nobody thought that. Nobody knew that other than those through whom the Spirit of God spoke, right? The, the prophets of the Old Testament prophesied about that, uh, but people, the philosophers of the age Paul lived in, hadn't ever imagined that. They couldn't see that. They couldn't think that up. It could not come from the natural, again, that's a great word for soulish, the natural mind. It doesn't come from the natural heart. It doesn't come from the natural mind. These things God revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comp comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Now, again, he's talking about himself, I think, himself and the other apostles. And he's saying, this is what we're preaching to you. We're preaching to you not a message like you're going to hear if you go to Athens and you stand on Mars Hill or you go and you visit the school of a philosopher or a teacher or even if you go visit a rabbi, you're not going to hear this, right? This, this isn't something that men 
could come up with. This isn't wise. Even by their standards, they look at it and they say, well, this is kind of foolish. But it's true. Why? Because it came from the Spirit of God who is revealing to us, the apostles, the mind of God. Because nobody, you can't, you can't guess God's mind. You can't know what God thinks or how God feels or what God's plan is unless He reveals it to you. Same as your spirit, right? Nobody knows what's in your spirit and in your mind. Nobody knows what's in your mind except your spirit. Nobody knows what's in the mind of God except the Spirit of God. And Paul says, as apostles of Jesus, we've been given that spirit. And these things have been freely given to us by God. Verse 13, and we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths. Now, here's a verse that kind of gets tricky. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. It doesn't actually say those who are spiritual, so it's hard to know if he's saying interpreting spiritual things to spiritual people or maybe interpreting spiritual things um, with like words that are spiritual. It's hard to know exactly what he's talking about, but I don't think that's necessary for our discussion. The natural person, right? The, the, the scribe, the, the philosopher, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. In other words, he can't come up with them on his own. Now, if he's mature, that's what Paul said at the beginning of this discussion, right? If he's mature, he can be taught them. If he's humble, he can listen to them. He can learn them. But if he's just relying on his own natural inclinations, his own natural thoughts and feelings and wisdom and insight and perception, if he's only relying on those things to, to think that the answer to life is within him, he'll never come up with the right answer. Right? Okay, exactly, to God's spirit, to the message that's being taught through the apostles to the people of that day, right? You have to listen to that. It has to come from outside of you. It doesn't come from within the natural man. It comes from the spirit of God um, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person, and again, I, I think here even he means himself and the other apostles. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now, I think as you go through, Paul will also describe Christians as spiritual. Now, it's interesting. Look at verse three, chapter 3 and verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, right? I wish I could. I wish you were spiritual people, but you're not. Now he switches. And now he doesn't say you're soulish, right? Because that just means that you're, you're looking within for the answers, right? You're looking within for the answers. You're looking in your own wisdom, your own feelings, your own insight and perception, and you're not finding them. But he doesn't say, I wish I could address you as spiritual, but he doesn't say natural. Now he says, you are fleshly, right? I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. You see how infants and flesh? So if flesh means if the noun means frailty and corruptibility, what do you think it means to say you're fleshly? Yeah, I wish you were spiritual, right? I wish you were listening to the things of the Spirit. I wish you were allowing God's Spirit, His presence to teach you and mature you and animate you and drive you on. And we know what that looks like, don't we? It looks like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what looks like in a spiritual people. That's what a spiritual people look like because they are being trained 
by the Spirit of God. Natural men, they might have some of those qualities, right? A soulish person might be able to look at the world and look at himself and say, hey, it'd be good if we were kind, but who should we be kind to? Everybody? Hmm, I don't know. Maybe we should just be kind to people that are like us and that live here, right? I mean, do you see how soulish people look inside for the answers? They might come up with part of the answer, but in the end, it leads to death, both spiritual death and physical death, right? We look all around the world. People are murdering and killing each other everywhere we look, in this country and around the world. Why? Because they're soulish. It's not, it's not, they're both though, aren't they? They're fleshly and they're soulish. The best of us are soulish. The best of us are trying to be wise, but we don't have the answers within us. We don't have the answers in our own mind, in our own heart, in our own spirit, in our own thinking. We don't have the answers. Even the very best thinkers in the world are still hurting themselves and hurting other people, right? And that's not only because we're looking in for the answers, but it's also because of our fleshliness, right? Because of our moral corruptibility, because we're biased, right? We, 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 end, up, we end up doing even the good things that we know we should do, we end up not doing those things. And the bad things that we know we shouldn't do, we end up doing those things. I mean, go out and you find somebody on the street and you ask them, should people be nice to each other? Even if they don't believe in God, even if they're just soulish, they're just depending on what's in their mind and heart and their own personal experiences. And you ask them, do you have a moral standard? Should we be nice to each other? Everybody's gonna say yes, right? And then you ask them, have you been? Have you always been? Have you always been nice to other people? Are you always kind and loving and, and peaceful? Are, you, you, you don't think people should be judgmental. Fantastic. Are you ever judgmental? Do you judge me for being a Christian? Whatever it is. I mean, we even break our own standard, don't we? We set the bar really low and we still break that, right? The answers are not within us. And even, even if they were, we are fleshly, right? And here, the people in Corinth have the answers, right? They've been told the mind of God. The secrets aren't secrets anymore. The mysteries aren't mysteries anymore. The Spirit of God has taught them this is what's right and this is what's true and this is what's good. But yet, they're not living that out. That's what it would be to be spiritual, right? To be animated by God's presence. To let God's Spirit through the teaching of the apostles, through the fellowship, through the breaking of bread, through prayer and fasting, all of these spiritual things to be taught by the Spirit of God so that you come out being loving and joyful and peaceful and patient and kind. And it seems like these Christians aren't even, aren't even in that process. And Paul says, I wish I could address you as spiritual people, but you're not. You're, you're fleshly. You're still babies. It's like you haven't even gotten started yet. You're still weak and you're still corruptible and you, you're still, you still aren't living out the truth that's been revealed to you through the Spirit. Um, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready with the idea that you should be ready, right? That he's not saying, spiritual doesn't mean perfect, right? That you don't have to be perfect to be spiritual, but you're just starting to mature. You're growing, you're, you're growing up. And he says, it's been long enough now. You, you, should, you should be spiritually minded people, but now you're still living out of your corruptibility, Right? You're still living out of your corruptibility, correct?
Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Great question. And in fact, look at Ephesians 5. That's so good. I'm going to totally get off track, but it was such a good comment that I want to, I want to look at Ephesians 5 because I was toying with uh, going over here anyway. Um, b- because like Craig said, you know, adding knowledge and learning more, and, and, that, and that absolutely is part of it. Think, though, think in this vein of how many things you read in the New Testament. I mean, we're, we're looking at First, Second Peter in our Bible classes, right? Add to your faith knowledge and to your knowledge. I don't know, remember the next one. This virtue and your virtue, brotherly kindness. You know, all these things that you add to, you keep adding all of these things. And part of it is knowledge, but part of it is also, look at Ephesians 5, look, look at verse 15. And really what I want us to see is that what's happening here is that we are a new creation, right? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We are a different kind of human being. Think about that and let that sink in for a second. And isn't that what Jesus said? If, if you want to be part of the kingdom of God, you have to be born again by the water and the spirit, right? The water and the spirit. And through the water of baptism and through the spirit of God, we are, we are born again and we are a different kind of human being. No longer are we merely natural flesh beings. We can still operate in our fleshly nature. The people in Corinth were doing that, and that was wrong. We can still operate in our corruptibility. We can still be soulish people, just natural people, just living like everybody else does. Or we can decide, I will let God's Spirit train me and animate me and mature me so that now I'm being transformed in the the renewal of my mind to be like Jesus, to live out his life. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Absolutely. Yes, yes, that exactly. And so the more spiritually spiritual we become, the more we can understand these things. But just trying to, just, and, and I don't think it means that we can't, because there's some people that say, well, you, you can't grasp the gospel until, you know, you have an experience or whatever. I don't think that's at all what Paul is saying. He's saying we are imparting these things to people who are mature, but the more spiritual we become, the more we can grasp these spiritual truths. And there's several points in Paul's letters. He says, listen, I'd love to write about more stuff. I'd love to really get into the deep spiritual things but you wouldn't get it, right? I mean, that's a horrible thing for evangelists to say, but, but I mean, it's true, right? Because they, they were still operating out of just their natural thinking rather than letting God teach them and God train them and, and growing up to be more and more like Christ, um, being a new kind of human being. Uh, look at Ephesians 5 and verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, right? How you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your of the time because the days are evil therefore do not be foolish but understand what the will of the lord is you see that not this but this look carefully how you walk not as unwise but as wise not as foolish 
but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And he says, and don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, that's lawlessness, that's just living however you want to without rules and, and, and things in place. But be filled with the Spirit. So obviously being filled with the Spirit is, is parallel and synonymous in some ways with being wise, right? Being wise, verse 15. Um, it's parallel with knowing what the will of the Lord is. And then he goes on to say, here's either in verses 19 through 21, there's two different ways to read that. Either this is how you become filled with the Spirit, or this is what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. I take it to mean this is how you go about being filled with the Spirit. Because he gives, he gives uh, an imperative, be filled with the Spirit. Now, I don't know about you, but I mean, when I was growing up in the church, nobody ever just told me that. Even after I became a Christian, nobody ever said, now Wes, go out and be filled with the Spirit this week. I, I mean, it'd be like, okay, where do, I, where do I go to get a fill-up? You know, I mean, how does that work exactly? I mean, I thought I got the Spirit when I became a Christian. How do I get filled with the Spirit? And I'll, it would be the same as if I gave you an imperative, go to Walgreens, and then I gave you some adverbial participles after that saying, walking by I don't know what that place is there, but walking by the soccer fields and, and then walking by that empty field and then walking by those houses, that walking is an adverbial participle that points back to go to the Walgreens, right? And so Paul says, be filled with the Spirit, and this is how. And then he says, addressing one another in, did I read that? Yeah, verse 19. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody, making music to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You see all those I-N-G words? Singing, making melody, giving thanks, submitting. This is how we go about being filled by God's Spirit. And haven't you experienced that in your life? That not only become a Christian, but the more you sing with the church, and the more you're taught and edified by those songs and by the teaching, addressing one another, as you give thanks to God, as you submit to one another in the body of Christ out of reverence for Christ, haven't you experienced that the more you do those things, the more your life looks like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? So is it read the Bible? Yes. Is it pray and give thanks? Yes. Is it come to church and sing with the church? Yes. Is it, um, it's all of those things, right? This is, this is how you go about living a life that's filled up by God's presence. And when you're filled up by God's presence, you, your life manifests the fruit of God's spirit. And you can tell the people in whom the spirit of God dwells and the people who are merely people of flesh people who are natural. And Paul, over and over again, and I, I included all kinds of verses on your worksheet, so I mean, feel free to, to look all those up. I'm sorry we ran out of time. But Paul says, listen, don't operate as a natural person. Don't operate in your frailty and your corruptibility, in your natural way of feeling and thinking, but let God's Spirit, and specifically, and you're never gonna know it except through the teaching of the apostles, right? And that's why all the way back to Acts chapter 2, when the church first started, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer, to fellowship. 
This is how you begin to be the people who are filled up by the Spirit of God so that our lives look like a new kind of humanity, a new kind of people that don't operate or think or feel or are animated the way the world is animated and thinks and feels. Thank you, guys. Have a great rest of the week. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit ccmcdermott.org.